The Four Persons, Inc. is a federally registered and licensed 501c3 charity. Any use of any of our content without our permission is prohibited by law. Our purpose is evangelization, education, and social action. Please go to our website at thefourpersons.com or our blog site at thefourpersons.net to make your tax-deductible donation by credit or debit card. You can also send a check to The Four Persons, Inc., P.O. Box 11214, Manassas, Virginia, 20113. To contact us, Send us an email at email at thefourpersons.com. Welcome to the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show on the Four Persons Network. This is our weekly Friday morning show with Catholic apologist Ken Litchfield. To call into the show today, the number is 515-602-9655. That number again is 515-602-9655. And now, let's welcome our host Ken Litchfield. Good morning, Four Persons Blog Talk Radio Show fans. This is the Catholic Ken Apologetics Show with me, your host, Ken Litchfield. We have a great show planned for you today. We will be discussing the Mass and where it came from. If you have any questions on this topic, feel free to call in at 515-602-9655. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes, you can send me an email at catholicken.com at thefourpersons.com. I am also available to come speak at your parish on this or many other topics. You can contact me at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. So let's get started with today's show. I'm a cradle Catholic, um, and many of us cradle Catholics know what we do at Mass but not necessarily why we do what we do at Mass um, and where it came from. So for those cradle Catholics who maybe have not been to church in a while, or for Protestants who don't know what we do at church on Sunday, I'm going to briefly go over what we do at Mass on Sundays to start. So the word Mass comes from the Latin word missa, which means go or to go out. The word missa is used at the end of the Latin mass where we are told to go out into the world again. The mass is divided into two parts, the liturgy of the word and the liturgy of the Eucharist. The word liturgy means work of the people. It is what we do during the mass or divine liturgy as it is known in the Eastern Rites and the Orthodox Church. When you enter the church, you dip your fingers into the holy water font and trace the sign of the cross on your body, starting at your head, moving down to your chest, then your 
left shoulder and right shoulder. This is a renewal of our baptism and forgives venial sins. Before entering your pew, you should touch one knee to the floor and trace the sign of the cross on your body again. This is done as a sign of reverence for the real presence of Jesus in the tabernacle. Whenever you pass in front of the tabernacle, you should at least bow, if not genuflect, by touching your knee to the floor and tracing the sign of the cross on your body. We stand at the beginning of the Liturgy of the Word, which starts um, usually with a hymn, and then we have a call to prayer, usually in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then we ask for forgiveness of our sins during the penitential rite. And then we offer praise to God and the glory to God in the highest prayer. After this, we sit and listen to a reading from the Old Testament, sing part of a psalm, and listen to a reading from one of the letters in the New Testament. After that, we stand out of reverence for the reading from one of the Gospels, because they contain the words of Jesus. And after that, we sit and listen to a homily that tells us more about the Bible readings and how we can use them in our own lives. A good homily will connect all four of the Bible readings together, information into use in our regular life. A priest can also offer a sermon, which is not necessarily connected to the readings, but would be a topic of a Christian topic inviting us to do, to live the faith better in the real world. After the homily, we sit, or next we, yeah, after the homily, we stand and recite the Nicene Creed. If you we're wondering where the Nicene Creed came from. Check out my show from two weeks ago. I cover it real well there. And the Nicene Creed is a brief explanation of what Christians believe. Then we ask God for the needs and wants of the church and for our personal needs. Then we sit for the beginning of the liturgy of the Eucharist. And we sing a hymn while the gifts are brought up to the offer, or brought up to the altar. The liturgy of the Eucharist begins with the offertory hymn while our gifts are brought up to the altar to be offered to God. We stand for a prayer that reminds us that we are joining with the saints and angels in heaven for this part of the Mass. The holy, holy, holy prayer reminds us that the Eucharist prayer we are about to begin is combined with the constant prayer in heaven. We kneel during the Eucharistic prayer where the priest acts in the person of Christ and changes the bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus, just like Jesus did at the Last Supper. It still looks like bread and wine, but it becomes Jesus under the ordinary and outward appearance of bread and wine. And why do we believe that? Because at the Last Supper, Jesus said, that is, Jesus said, is my body and this is my blood. The Eucharistic prayer concludes with an ending prayer where the priest raises the body and blood of Jesus and says, 
through him, with him, and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, all glory and honor is yours, Almighty Father, forever and ever. We respond with a great big amen, showing that we agree that the priest is holding up Jesus' body and blood. After the Eucharistic prayer, we stand for the Our Father prayer and offer a sign of peace to the people near us. Then we kneel again to ask God to make us worthy to receive him in the Eucharist. When we walk up to receive Jesus in the Eucharistic bread and wine, we open our mouth to receive the host or hold out our cupped hand with one hand under the other to receive the host. If you receive the Eucharist in your hands, be sure to consume it before returning to your seat, generally while you're still at the front of the church. After receiving the Eucharist, return to your seat and kneel. Offer a prayer of thanksgiving to God, and you can join in the singing of the communion song or continue to pray on your own. After this, we stand for the closing blessing given by the priest and sing the closing hymn. After the hymn, you are free to leave or stay and pray even more on your own. If you haven't been to confession for a while, then you need to go before receiving the Eucharist, which will be a source of grace for you. Priests are very familiar with people who haven't gone to confession for years, so don't be afraid. Also, remember, you only have to confess the number and kind of your sins, not all the details of each one. So we have a caller here. Is that you, John? Here in the Northeast, from is coming in from the Great Lakes. Belief is making its way through the Atlantic. Let's start with a tropical storm. Belief will produce large waves and a recurrent risk. I guess he's just listening in. Okay, so many Protestant churches use a similar liturgy to the Catholic Church. These churches include the Lutheran Church, the Anglican Church, and the Methodist Church. If you attend the worship services at these churches, you might think like, well, this is just like the Catholic Mass. However, there is a difference. Lutheran ministers, Anglican priests, and Methodist ministers do not have apostolic authority to change the bread and wine into the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. So it looks like the same thing on the outside, but the real presence of Jesus is not there in the Eucharist because they don't have apostolic succession. Now, other Protestant churches follow the pattern developed by John Calvin in the mid-1500s. John Calvin would open up the Sunday church service with a hymn, and then he would read some passages from the Bible, and then he would explain what the passages meant. And then the worship service concludes with another hymn. Presbyterian and Baptist churches generally follow this pattern, and you may see this in many other versions of Christianity. But whenever you see that version of Christian Christian worship on Sunday, you can know it goes back to John Calvin, 
it doesn't go back to the beginning of Christianity. In the early 1900s, there was a Pentecostal revival where Christians would get together and worship Jesus as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These worship services could become a very vocal and active as people were moved by the Holy Spirit in response to some preaching from their worship leader. Um, you can see a large variety of activities here, and some people get kind of, uh, shall we say, freaked out or uh, overwhelmed by the activity at some Pentecostal revival worship prayer services. But not all of them are that way. And so if you want to experience it sometime, feel free to check it out. But Note that, you know, they aren't just, they're not worshiping like the first Christians did. Modern evangelical churches have a blend of John Calvin's worship service with some Pentecostal vibrance to make it more entertaining. They still follow the basic hymn sandwich of song, Bible reading, preaching, and song. Some evangelical churches also have a communion service of some sort. A lot of your more modern evangelical churches, you know, some of the large ones have like theater style seating. They may have multiple worship bands, or they might just have one worship band, or it might be just somebody playing a guitar and singing a hymn. But it's not the way the first Christians worship. Some Protestants ask, where is the Mass in the New Testament? And they do this because they think that, you know, the Bible is some sort of manual on how we're supposed to be, be a Christian. But the Bible is actually, and particularly the New Testament, is the collection of books that the Catholic Church assembled so that they would all the catholic churches would know which of the early christian writings could be read at mass by the time the catholic church assembled the bible there were over 140 early christian writings that could have been in the new testament but the catholic church picked out the 27 books that would make up the new testament based on their authorship by an apostle or his secretary and whether it had been read in churches founded by apostles from very early on in Christianity, and whether it taught what the Catholic Church was already teaching. So the Catholic Church existed and was worshiping before we assembled the canon of Scripture. Canon, you know, in the first three centuries of Christianity, after the writings that became the New Testament were written, many different churches had more or less than the 27 books that we now have in the New Testament. There wasn't any established list in use for the first 300 years of Christianity. But the Mass doesn't need to be specifically laid out in the New Testament because the Jews already had organized worship. 
and the first Christians were Jews and already had a plan for worshiping God. Ten days after Jesus ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 2, Peter and the apostles go out and preach to the Jews that had gathered in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And as preaching to them, the Jews ask, what must we do to be saved? Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll also receive the Holy Spirit. And this promises for you and your children. And after that, it says, they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread, which is a Eucharistic meal, and the prayers, which was the specified Jewish prayers in use at that time. It wasn't just any old prayer. The apostles did have the Eucharistic liturgy that they had, Jesus had given them at the Last Supper, and also the Our Father, but these things become incorporated into the Jewish worship of the first century. The first Christians didn't just start from scratch. They started with Judaism. And I like to think of Catholic Christianity as Judaism plus Jesus, because the Catholic Church is built on the roots of Judaism. Jesus had evolved Judaism into, the, into Christianity by transforming the Passover Seder meal into the Eucharistic meal. Jewish worship in the first century developed from their time in exile after being conquered by the Babylonians. A little brief history here on the Jews. Let's see. The Solomon, well, David had received the plans for building a temple from God, but God told David because he had sinned with Bathsheba that his son would build the temple. So Solomon David's son, with Bathsheba, built the temple in Jerusalem. And at that time, all 12 tribes were united together. But after Solomon's kingship, the Jewish kingdom broke into two parts, where there was 10 northern tribes and two southern tribes. The Assyrians came and conquered the 10 northern tribes, and all those Jews were um, the Jewish men were sent out around the Assyrian Empire to work as slaves, and the Jewish women were interbred with the Assyrians. And later on, the Babylonians came along and conquered the Assyrians in the north and the Jews in the south. And they were called the Jews there in the south because they were the Israelite tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And Benjamin was much smaller than the tribe of Judah. So it pretty much became known as the Jews. Uh, let's see. So when the Babylonians conquered the Jews in the south, they destroyed the temple. And the Jews were dispersed all around the Babylonian Empire, which was around the Mediterranean Sea. And later on, the Jews teamed up with the Romans to defeat the Greeks. 
because the Greeks eventually conquered the Babylonians. So this is why you have to understand the history around the Mediterranean basin to understand Christianity because there's so much that came before Christianity and when you know the roots of Christianity through Judaism you understand why we do what we do and how things came to be the way they were. Now, since the Jews teamed up with the Romans to defeat the Greeks, the Jews thought they would be able to go their own separate way, but the Romans, you know, subjugated the Jews just like the Greeks did. But the Jews that were dispersed around the Mediterranean, uh, because the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, developed a way of passing on their religion. And the religion was passed on through the rabbis who read the Jewish scriptures to the faithful and they continued to pass on the faith to the next generation that way. The Jews kept their temple, their scrolls in their synagogues in a special box called the tabernacle. And in our modern Catholic church, we keep the Eucharist in the tabernacle because Jesus is the word of God made flesh. And the Jews had the word in the tabernacle, and we have the word in, that became flesh in the tabernacle. And the Jews passed on their teaching in synagogue communities, and the place where they met was also called the synagogue. Just like in the Catholic Church, we have a building called a church, but also the church is the members of the Christian community that worships there. And we take care of each other just like the Jews did in their synagogue communities. Now, I developed a chart that shows how first century Jewish worship also compares to second century Jewish, second century Christian worship and the current Catholic Mass. So what I'm going to do is read the column that uh, explains what the Jews did for worship, and then I will read a column that explains how Justin Martyr described what Christians did on Sunday, and then I will read the column that shows what we do at the Catholic, current Catholic Mass. And then I will go, go across to connect what the Jews did compared to what we Christians do. So, in the first century, this is what Jewish synagogue Sabbath worship looked like. They would begin with a call to prayer. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then this would be followed by some prayers and petitions asking God to bless his people. Then there would be readings from the five books of Moses that is called the Torah. And then they would have readings from the prophets and historic writings of the scriptures. And then the presider would then offer a sermon encouraging imitation of the readings. Then they would sing psalms of praise to God, followed by the prayers asking for God's blessing. The worship service would end with the ironic blessing. May the Lord bless you 
and keep you, and may his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now, this is what the Jews did on what we now call Saturday. But for the Jews, the day begins in the evening the night before. So on Friday, the Jews in the first century and Orthodox Jews still today, they would have the Friday preparation mini Passover meal in the home. And it is a todah or Thanksgiving sacrifice. And cakes of unleavened bread and wine are used along with prayers to offer thanks to God in the home synagogue with the eldest male acting as the presider. And this is the modern Seder meal that, or uh, Shabbat meal that Jews practice today. A Todah sacrifice would be offered by someone whose life had been delivered from peril, disease, or to or the sword, or to show his gratitude to God. The bread and meat, along with the wine, would constitute the elements of the sacred Todah meal. This would be accompanied by prayers and songs of thanksgiving, such as Psalm 116. And this idea of offering a, uh, a meal and as thanks to God goes all the way back to when, to the book of Genesis, when uh, Isaac's father, <laughs> Abraham, yeah, there we go, Abraham uh, offered 10% of the spoils of battle to the priest king Melchizedek. So this is a very, 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 very old Jewish tradition going all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, in 155 AD, a guy named Justin, who was later martyred and is now known as Justin Martyr, wrote an apology explaining to the Roman emperor why the Romans shouldn't persecute the Christians. And so this is what Justin Martyr wrote to explain what we do on the Lord's Day, Sunday. Justin Martyr's writing, he refers to the day that the Christians offer their worship as the day of the sun, and that's why we call it Sunday. So before the New Testament is assembled, Christians are worshiping on Sunday. The Seventh-day Adventists, you know, in our modern times, push this idea that we're supposed to continue to worship on Saturday like the Jews. But Jesus evolved Judaism into Christianity, and the Christians from the very beginning worshiped on the Lord's Day, the, Jesus that the day that Jesus rose from the dead, which is Sunday. And we have confirmation of this in the second century by Justin Martyr, that it's the day of the sun that Christians gather. So on the Lord's Day, the day that we call the day of the sun, we all gather in the same place. The first Christians, like the Jews at the same 
of the first century gathered in converted well at first they gathered in somebody who had a large house but eventually as the christian communities grew they evolved a roman row house into a space that was de dedicated to christian worship so it would be opened up as much as possible and all the Christians would gather together there for worship. It would look pretty much like any other house from the outside, but inside that's where they would gather. And keep in mind at this time that it was illegal to be a Christian, and by hiding the church in a regular Roman row house, it was easy to keep under the radar of the Roman Empire. So the first Christians gathered on the day that they call the Day of the Sun in one place. And then the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. So that would be the Old Testament readings. And then the memoirs of the apostles are read as long as time permits. That would be the New Testament readings. And then when the reader has finished, the presider encourages them, the Christians, to imitate these things. And then we all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves and others so that we may be found faithful to the commandments and to obtain eternal salvation. Prayers are concluded, concluded we exchange the kiss of peace. Then someone brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together to him that presides over the brethren. The presider takes them and prays over them so that the food which is blessed by the prayer is transmutated into the flesh and blood of that Jesus who was made flesh. So right here in the early second century, Justin Martyr is writing that the Christians believe that the bread and wine are transmutated into the flesh and blood of Jesus. Now call that transubstantiation. It's basically the same thing. And you can see that in the second century, Christians were already believing in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Now, when the presider has concluded the prayers and thanksgiving, all present give voice to an acclamation by saying, Amen. Then the presider, when the presider has given thanks and the people have responded, the deacons give the Eucharistic, Eucharistized bread and wine and water to the faithful present. The deacons also take the bread to those who are absent. So this shows that the early Christians believed that Jesus was present in the Eucharistic bread even after the Mass. Some Protestants uh, following John Calvin believe that Jesus is spiritually present during the Eucharistic meal, but not physically present. But the deacons were authorized in the second century to take the Eucharistic bread to others outside of Mass.
Now, this is um, the modern Catholic Mass that we do on Saturday, late in the day, or on Sunday. And we begin with the greeting of the assembly in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then we have the penitential act, start out with I confess. And or we have the Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And then we continue with glory to God in the highest. And then we have the Old Testament reading, the Psalms, and the New Testament reading. And then we have the gospel reading where we stand out of reverence for the word of God. And then we have a homily explaining the readings and encouraging their imitation in our current life. Then we have the profession of faith with the apostolic creed or the Nicene creed. The apostles creed or the Nicene creed. Yeah. Prayers of the faithful, then we have the prayers of the faithful where we pray to God for blessing for ourselves and for others that we may live in communion with him and obtain eternal life. This is uh, let's see. Then the presentation of gifts when the bread and wine and money are collected for the church are brought to the altar. The priest or bishop acts in the person of Christ and recites the words of Jesus over the bread and wine and transforms them into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. The Eucharistic prayer is concluded by the faithful claiming the great Amen, who prepared to receive who are re prepared to receive the body and blood blood of Christ. And then we also have the sign of peace that we exchange amongst one another. Uh, instead of kissing each other like the Christians did in the second century, most commonly we shake hands. And for those that are afraid of spreading germs or perhaps are not feeling quite perfectly healthy, we maybe just wave to one another as a sign of peace to our fellow Christians there in church. Then the Eucharistic bread and wine is distributed to the faithful present at Mass, and some people are authorized to take the Eucharistic bread home to those who cannot attend. So now I will do kind of like the cross tabs in how the Jewish worship and the first Christian worship and the modern Catholic Mass all fit together. So the Jews begin with the call to prayer, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And Justin Martyr tells us in the first century, second century, on the day that we call the day of the sun, we all gather in the same place. And today we begin with the greeting of the assembly in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then this is followed by some, the, again, in the Jewish worship of the first century, this is followed by some prayers and petitions asking God to bless his people. Justin Martyr doesn't really write about this in the second century, but in our modern Catholic Mass, we have the penitential act of I confess, 
and or we have Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And we sing the glory to God in the highest. And the next step for the Jews was in the first century, then there would be readings from the five books of Moses called the Torah. Justin Martyr writes in the second century that the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. So again, Old Testament writings. And in our modern Catholic Mass, we have Old Testament readings, Psalms, and New Testament readings. And the next step in Jewish worship would be the readings from the prophets and historic writings of the scriptures. Now, this would be kind of comp comparable to our Old Testament writings in the modern Catholic Mass. But in the second century, the Christians were having the memoirs of the apostles read to them as long as time permits. So they would, this would be the New Testament reading. And in the modern Catholic Mass, we have the Gospel reading, where we stand out of reverence for the Word of God. Now, after this, uh, the pres Jewish presider would, in the first century, would then offer a sermon encouraging imitation of the readings. When the reader has finished, the presider encourages them to imitate these things in the second century, as written by J Justin Martyr. And today in our modern Catholic Mass, we have a homily explaining that the readings explaining the readings and encouraging their imitation in our current life. Now, after this, the Jews would sing psalms of praise to God. Justin Martyr doesn't really write about this in the second century, but in our modern Catholic Mass, this is where we have the profession of faith with the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. And in the first century, the Jews would follow this by prayers asking for God's blessing. And the Jewish worship service would end with the Aaronic blessing. Now, in the second century, Justin Martyr writes that the next thing the Christians would do would we would all rise together and offer prayers for ourselves and others so that we may be found faithful to the commandments and to obtain eternal salvation. Now, this is kind of interesting to note here that Justin Martyr is writing about how we are, we offer prayers to be for ourselves and others so that we may be found faithful to the commandments. So Justin Martyr is writing that we have to be faithful to the commandments so that we can obtain eternal salvation. Justin Martyr obviously believed that just because you were a Christian didn't mean you already were guaranteed to go to heaven. You still had to be faithful to the commandments. Now, in our modern Catholic Mass, this has developed into the prayers of the faithful, where we pray to God for blessing for ourselves and for others that we may live in communion with him, and obtain eternal life. Jewish worship concludes with, May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may his face, 
face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And at this point in the second century worship, this is where the prayers are concluded and they would exchange a sign of peace with a kiss. And this is the sign of peace that we now exchange at the end of the Eucharistic liturgy. Now, as I previously explained, the Jews did a Friday night mini Passover in their homes, and Jesus evolved this into the Eucharistic liturgy. So in the second century, on the Day of the Sun, Sunday, Justin Martyr writes, then someone brings bread and a cup of water and wine mixed together to him that presides over the brethren. Now, it's kind of interesting to note here that Justin Martyrs refers to the person that presides over the brethren. He doesn't specifically refer to him as a priest because he doesn't want to confuse the Roman emperor and any other Romans that might be reading this with the idea that just because Jews have priests and the early Christians have priests, they're not the same priests as the priests that work in the Roman pagan temples. They're different kinds of priests. Now, in our modern Catholic Mass, the presentation of gifts, we have the presentation of gifts when the bread and wine and money collected for the church are brought to, forth to the altar. Next up in the Jewish worship on Friday night was the cakes of unleavened bread and wine are used along with prayers to offer thanks to God in the home synagogue with the eldest male acting as the presider. In the second century, Justin Martyr writes that the presider takes them, that is the bread and wine and the water, and prays over them so that the food which is blessed by the prayer is transmutated into the flesh and blood that Jesus was made in the flesh. In our modern Catholic Mass, the priest or bishop acts in the person of Christ, just like the presider did in the second century, and recites the words of Jesus over the bread and wine and transforms them into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. Now, going back to the Jews of the first century, a todah sacrifice could be offered by someone whose life had been delivered from peril, disease, and or the sword to show his gratitude to God. Justin Martyr writes in the second century, when he, the presider, con has concluded the prayers and thanksgiving, all present give voice to an acclamation by saying, Amen. And the Eucharistic prayer is concluded by the faithful, acclaiming the great Amen. And the people are prepared to receive the body and blood of Christ. So at the end of the Eucharistic prayer where the priest holds up the 
the body and blood of Jesus and says, through him, with him, and in him, in communion with the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever, and we respond with amen, that means we agree that what the priest is holding up there is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. He is truly present with us at that time. And you should take seriously that that is Jesus that you are about to receive. Now, the Todah meal that the Jews would offer in the first century would consist of bread and meat along with wine, which would be accompanied by prayers and songs of thanksgiving, such as Psalm 116. Now, in the second century, Justin Martyr writes that when the presider has given thanks and the people have responded, the deacons give the Eucharistic bread and wine and water to the people. And the deacons also take the bread to those who are absent. The Eucharistic bread and wine is just then distributed to the faithful present at the Mass. Some people are authorized to take the Eucharistic bread to those who cannot attend. And then, of course, the Catholic Mass is concluded with a hymn where we are, we sing a hymn in praise to God and we go out and bring Christ to the world outside of our church. Now, you might wonder, where did I get all this information from? So, there's a guy named James Birchall, Synagogues to Church. And, of course, Justin Martyr's first apology to the Roman Emperor Tiberius, uh, which is what I mentioned, where the second century Christian worship comes from. And in our modern times, we have the general instruction of the Roman Missal. So you can get those three writings and read them over for a deeper dive into all the stuff that I covered here. Now, many people will ask, you know, where is the Mass in the Bible? But instead of thinking about the Bible, the New Testament, as a manual for how to worship Jesus, we need to reverse that because the first century Christians didn't have a specified New Testament. And, of course, they were already had organized worship as Jews. However, we find a lot of the Bible in the Mass. The opening blessing comes from Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. The apostolic greeting comes from 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The great amen comes First Chronicles 16, 36. The Lord be with you, which is the line in the Mass, comes from Luke 1, 28 and 2 Thessalonians 3.16, and Ruth 2.4. Lord have mercy comes to us from Matthew 17.15, and 20.31, and Psalm 123, verse 3. The glory to God comes to us from Luke chapter 2, verse 14, plus many other texts in Revelation. 
So the Gloria is a combination of Luke's Gospel and bits and pieces from the book of Revelation. And for many cradle Catholics, you know, we get used to reciting the glory to God in the highest and, you know, might not really think about what we're doing there. So I invite all of you cradle Catholics to really think about the words that you're saying when you recite that. And for Protestants who don't realize how much we revere and worship God in the Mass, read the glory to God in the highest, and you will see how much we actually worship God at Mass. And then we have the Alleluia, which comes to us from Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, and Tobit 18, verse 18. And then we have Lift Up Your Hearts from Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 41. And then we have the Holy, 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 and we find that in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, Mark's Gospel chapter 11, verse 9, verses 9 and 10, and Psalm 118, 26. The Eucharistic prayer comes to us from 1 Corinthians 11:23 through 26, where Paul de describes the first century Christian worship. Uh, also from Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 to 28, in Mark's Gospel chapter 14 to 22, and Luke's Gospel in chapter 24. The great Amen comes to us from Revelation chapter 5, verse 14. The Lord's Prayer comes to us from Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. There's also a slightly different version in Luke's Gospel, but the one that follows most closely to what we use today is in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 to 13. And we also find it in the Didache which is a first-century Christian writing that was written along with the New Testament writings. And if you haven't heard already, uh, my friend William Hemsworth, he's going through the Didache chapter by chapter, so you can catch up with what William has already been talking about and look forward to the next chapters that he'll be going over. The Didache gives us great insight into Christianity of the first century. And the peace be with you comes to us from John chapter 14, verse 27, and John chapter 20, verse 19. The Lamb of God comes to us from John chapter 1, verse 29, and Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. And other places, Jesus is mentioned as the Lamb of God. And the phrase, this is the Lamb of God, comes to us from Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. And the part where we pray, Lord, I am not worthy to receive you, comes to us from Matthew chapter 8, verse 8. And the part of the Mass where it says, go in peace, comes to us from Luke chapter 7, verse 50. 
and Second Chronicles chapter 35, verse 3. And the phrase, thanks be to God, comes to us from Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. So you can see that although the Mass is not laid out specifically in the, the New Testament, many parts of it come from the New Testament and are sprinkled throughout the Mass. Now, I have a more in-depth version here of explaining the Mass, and we're going to run over time for our time on the radio. But for those of you tuning in to the podcast later on, all here. So this is the Mass explained in depth. The congregation is called to actively share in the singing and the appropriate responses during the Mass. The Mass is not a spectator event where the presider does everything and we just sit around. The people sing, the lectors share in the readings, and the altar servers assist the priest. Our posture is part of our active participation. We stand in union, we sit as we listen, and we kneel as we offer the Eucharistic prayer as a sign of humbling ourselves before God. Even periods of silence are part of our active participation. The silence is a chance for us to reflect on how God is speaking to us. Active participation goes beyond our external acts. As active participants, we are called to attentively listen to the readings and homily and reflect upon the meanings in our lives. We are called as presider the role of the priest is not to do everything himself. Rather, the priest, as presider, leads the people as they offer their worship. There are two main parts of the Mass, the Liturgy of the Word and the Liturgy of the Eucharist. The Liturgy of the Word begins with the opening prayer, which is also called a collect and it's spelled collect, so, but it's pronounced collect because of the, the Latin roots of, and continues with the readings, the homily, the creed, and the prayers of the faithful. The liturgy of the Eucharist begins with a preparation of the gifts and concludes with a prayer after communion. Before we begin the liturgy of the word, though, we have some introductory rites The introductory rites are not just something we do to get Mass started. The gathering rites, beginning with the procession and opening hymn, are meant to draw us together as a community and to open ourselves to the Spirit. The general instruction of the Roman Missal says the gathering hymn's primary purpose is to draw us into unity. We must be welcoming to each person, friend, or stranger to have that unity. The procession is the priest, the deacon, the servers, and other ministers enter, preferably while a hymn is being sung. The act of processing can serve as a symbol of gathering together to worship God. The entrance hymns, hymn serves two purposes. One, it gives praise to God, 
secondly, by the act of all the people singing it together, promotes the unity of the congregation. The congregation should not be seen as a group of individual people, but rather as a people gathered as one. Gathering at the altar and greeting. The priest and ministers bow at the altar as a sign of reverence and genuflect if the tabernacle is nearby. And the priest and deacon kiss the altar as a further sign of reverence. The priest begins by making the sign of the cross and greeting the people and offering a short introduction. Then we have the penitential rite, where we called to reflect on the fact that we are not perfect in and of ourselves. Rather, we rely on God's help and seek his mercy for those times when we stumble and fail to do good, which is God's will. It's about praising God for his mercy upon our sins. During the Eastern season, the penitential rite may be accompanied or replaced with a sprinkling rite where we are sprinkled with holy water. Then we sing or recite the Gloria, which is an ancient hymn of praise, giving glory to God as the Lamb of God. It is omitted during the seasons of Advent and Lent. And then we have an opening prayer, a collet. And the opening prayer is a different prayer for each Sunday and holy day of the year. There are also specific prayers assigned for many of the feasts and memorials of the saints. Lastly, there are prayers based on a topic that is peace, unity, vocations, or good harvest. Then we have the Liturgy of the Word. And that begins with the readings. The Sunday readings are of the Mass that are found in the lectionary. For Sunday, the lectionary follows a three-year cycle. There are also three readings and a responsorial psalm. The first reading is taken from the Old Testament, except during the Easter season when it is taken from the Book of Acts and the New Testament. The first reading is followed by a responsorial psalm, generally taken from the Book of Psalms. Then there is a second reading, taken from one of the New Testament letters. Then the Gospel reading follows. In year A, the first year of the three-year cycle, the Gospel is generally taken from the Gospel of Matthew. Year B is generally taken from Mark's Gospel, and year C is generally from Luke's Gospel. John's Gospel is read during Lent or seasons and at other occasional times throughout the year. While not every passage is read, the Gospels are generally read from start to finish. The first reading is picked to correspond to the theme of the Gospel reading. The second reading is generally unrelated to the gospel readings, but sometimes is connected and is a continuous reading of the New Testament letters. Now, the Catholic Church also offers daily Mass, 
and for daily mass, the lectionary follows a two-year cycle. And the gospel readings repeat every other year of the daily cycle. The first reading, except during Advent, Lent, and Easter, rotate between the two years. The first reading may be taken from the Old Testament or the New Testament, and the responsorial psalm also follows the same two-year rotation as the first reading. Normally, there is no second reading at a daily Mass. So if you're only used to going to church on Sunday and you happen to show up for Mass during the week and you're wondering where the second reading is, well, the weekly Mass is kind of a shortened version of our Sunday Mass. So you don't get two readings from the Gospel or two readings from the Bible and the Gospel. You get one reading from most of the from the Bible and a reading from the Gospel. The homily is done by the priest or deacon. Most generally, the theme of the homily is taken from the readings of the day, but may be taken from many of the prayers of the day or their Eucharistic prayer. The purpose of the homily is to take the sacred words of Scripture or the sacred texts of the Mass and interpret them to show how they might guide us in our world today. Profession of faith, which is the reciting of a creed. A creed is a statement or profession of faith. At Mass, the creed we profess is the Nicene Creed, which has been in its present form since the 5th century, and portions are older than that. If you want more information on the creed, check out my uh, show from two weeks ago where I go over the creeds really well. The creed was developed as, a, as an expression of the basic beliefs of the Catholic Church in an era where false teachings on such things as humanity and divinity of Jesus were in question. Today, over 1,600 years later, the creed is still a fundamental expression of what it means to be a Christian. The creed is to be said on all Sundays and holy days. So you won't find it at the daily mass during the week, but it's still there on Sundays and holy days, which could be during the week. Prayers of the Faithful. Jesus says, wherever two or more are gathered together, Pray and pray in my name, the prayers will be answered. And we find that in Matthew chapter 18, verse 19. Before concluding the liturgy of the word, we pray together for the needs of the church and for the needs of all God's people. So this is the second part of the Mass is the liturgy of the Eucharist. And that begins with the preparation of the gifts. The gifts are now brought forth but it is not out, not just the gifts of bread and wine that we offer. Yes, bread and wine are brought forth, but we offer more than that. Visibly, the collection is taken up one way that we give thanks to God for what he has done for us and contribute to the work of the church. But the gifts go beyond that. 
We are also called as members of the body of Christ through baptism to offer to use the gifts God has given us for the good of God's people. The preparation of the gifts conclude with a prayer over the gifts said by the priest. The Eucharistic prayer. The Eucharistic prayer begins with a preface, preface, and that is the Lord be with you, to which the people respond and also with you. Throughout the Eucharistic prayer, the priest says the vast majority of the prayer himself with a few responses by the people. We are all called to share in the offering of our sacrifices. The priest, as the presider, says the prayers on behalf of the people. However, as we pray the Eucharistic prayer that the Spirit come upon the gifts of bread and wine, we also pray that the Spirit come upon us and transform us into one body, one spirit in Christ. As active participants in the Mass, we listen and offer ourselves as a priest leads us in the Eucharistic prayer. After the Eucharistic prayer, we have the Lord's Prayer. As we prepare to receive communion, we pray together as Jesus taught us for the Lord to give us our daily bread. We ask for forgiveness and we always and that we always do God's will. Then we have the sign of the of peace where we seek the peace of Christ and in seeking God's peace we also seek unity with one another. As a sign of peace and unity, we offer each other a sign of peace, which could be a handshake or a wave some acknowledgement to others in the church that we are all one together. Then we have the fraction. The fraction rite is the breaking of the bread that has become the body of Christ. So if you're looking up at the altar, you'll see this. In offering his life for us on the cross, Jesus has become the Lamb of God that is offered for our sins. As the priest breaks the bread, the people sing the Lamb of God, acknowledging Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that takes away our sins. And the priest will some crumbs from this broken bread into the wine so that those who only receive the cup, which is Jesus' blood, also receive some of Jesus' body because as Catholics, we recognize Jesus' true presence in the Eucharistic bread from the round host to the smallest crumbs. It's all Jesus, and it's all of Jesus, whether it's a crumb or a whole disc. Every bit of it is Jesus, and that's why priests take such great care in cleaning up the vessels used during the Eucharistic prayer after the Eucharistic, after communion is distributed to the faithful. Then we have the communion service. In receiving communion, we profess the faith in Jesus. By coming forth to receive communion, the Eucharist, bread, and wine, we are agreeing to strive to do God's will in all things. We don't agree to strive to, if we don't agree to do to strive to do God's will, then communion is not something we seek. 
And you should be in a state of grace that is having no unconfessed mortal sins on your soul before receiving the Eucharistic bread. Because as Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if you receive the Eucharist unworthily, it will not help you and it will just heap up your sin. And then we have the prayer after communion. After the communion rite, with a prayer that we have be strengthened and transformed by communion we have received. Then we have the concluding rite, which includes the final blessing and the dismissal. The Mass is ended. Go in peace. And the kissing of the altar by the priest and deacon and the recessional. And then we all go out into the world to love and serve the Lord. So this concludes today's show. Thanks for tuning in. I really appreciate it. If you'd like a copy of today's show notes or have a follow-up question, send me an email at catholicken at thefourpersons.com. That's catholicken at the, T-H-E, the number four, persons.com. Or you can look me up on Facebook. If you would like to have me come speak at your parish on this or many other topics, you can send me an email at kenlitchfield61 at gmail.com or look me up on Facebook. May God bless and guide your efforts to bring the truth of the Catholic faith to the world. Bye-bye.